The sun has left and forgotten me. It's dark, I cannot see. Your stories don't define you, but how you tell them will. Hi, I'm Sarah Elkins, your host and chief storymaker at Elkins Consulting. Well, today you're in for a treat because you have two storytellers on this podcast episode. And Seth Deckman was introduced to me by my brother, Eric Elkins. And whenever my brother introduces me to somebody, I absolutely know we are going to laugh. We're going to have a good time. We're probably going to talk about food. We're probably going to talk about music because those are the things my brother and I share deeply, this love and passion. So Seth, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. And not only did your brother introduce us, but my brother introduced me to your brother. So it's a brotherly introduction. Well, that is almost always the best kind of introduction. My brother knows me so well. It is, you know, and it just adds to the story, Sarah. <laughs> it really does. Yeah. And you have uh, if, if you don't story. mind, if you don't mind, I you know, before we hit record, we were talking about finding spirituality. Let, let's just dive into the heart of the matter. Um, yes. You, you can guide me. Um, you know, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for, for having me. Um, I'm fascinated with storytelling. I've um, read your book. I've studied your website. I've checked out your LinkedIn posts. And, uh, you know, storytelling is not one size fits all. There are a lot of storytellers out there that say that they are the storyteller, or a storyteller. I think it goes back to the, to time. And you and I were sharing about moving and our Jewish roots and where you find spirituality. And, you know, um, I've been very thoughtful. My in-laws were just visiting from Israel. They were supposed to come for three weeks. And literally the day they left was October 7th when um, all this new activity, we'll, we'll phrase it that way, it started erupting. And they extended their stay for six weeks and they just returned. They're back safe and sound. But it did kind of, you know, put me into a thought. I don't know if this happened to you, where what is it to be Jewish? What is it to be an American Jew? What is it to be an American Jew? How you relate to Israel? Is that something you've ever thought about? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I absolutely know. have. And I actually had somebody tell me that I didn't understand the difference between anti-Zionist and anti-Semitism. Mm. Somebody actually told me that mm -hmm. I don't understand that. Well, look, and you may not understand it. Who knows? They might be the authority, capital T, capital A. No, I, I don't these know. These people you know? are not the yeah. authority. I yeah. promise you, they're not yeah. an authority in anything outside of yeah. their own lives. And they live in Helena, Montana. Mm -hmm. They're middle-aged white Christian men. Mm -hmm. Pale and, and male. Pale and male. And there's no way they could have any concept yeah. of my lived experience, much less any Jew or any person of color or any person in the LGBTQ community, they can't. Yeah. And there are some that actually try and do a beautiful job of asking questions and being curious and stopping the judgment voice. You know, it it's natural. It, it is bias that we all carry to have that internal judgy voice that comes first, but it's every thought after that that matters. And um, I know a lot of, of white Christian people who stop that voice in order to be more curious, in order to, to show their compassion. But the, this person who said this to me definitely does not do that. 
Yeah. And it was it was hurtful. It was painful. He sent me a blog post that had zero citations of where mm. this information was coming from. But it basically said that anti-Semitism is an overused word and that it doesn't really exist anymore. And it was so sad what happened in World War II and subsequent attempts at annihilation of the Jews. Um, but that's not what exists anymore. And this is the person who told me that I need to understand the difference. And to me, everything in his blog post that he sent me was anti-Semitic. Yeah. So maybe maybe I don't know the difference, but I know anti-Semitism when I see it and feel it. Yeah. <laughs> and and it, you know, there's not one size fits all, and it come it can come euphemistically, it can come backhandedly, it can come passive aggressively, but you do kind of internalize it. What, what, what a thought, if you don't mind, that I wanted to Please. share with you, and I'll probably be blending a bunch of ideas in the context of storytelling. But, you know, I grew up in a kosher home and my father was fairly observant and he passed when I was young and we moved west from the East Coast. And I think my historic and cultural connection was always rooted and strong and grounded in my practicing ob observance of rituals um, dissipated, maybe got watered down, modernized, assimilated, if you will. Um, it's important to me. My children are in, in, in religious school. They're learning how to read Hebrew. They're studying and training for a, uh, a bar bat, bat mitzvah. But, you know, in a very modern sense, Rabbi Stephanie is a great teacher. Um, we're in a historic synagogue here in Charleston, which dates back to 1640. Um, so there's a really a lot of pride to be a part of that through line. But in thinking of, you know, my in-laws who were here and my mother who just came and we all have family in Israel, um, you know, how do you relate to this? Because frankly, uh, the Jewish state was once weak, 48, 56, 73, um, and then it turned and it's not weak. It's a, it's a strength. And the current government, I wholeheartedly disagree with. I, I think that Thank citing you. biblical um, references as justifications for settlements or expansion is antithetical to what I believe is the Jewish ethos. So if you go back to Egypt, and again, I am not a scholar, but I'm just thinking that you know, we were strangers in a strange land, story-wise, right? That's the metaphor. Mm -hmm. And part of being a Jew, at least what I was taught and trained almost on a guttural level, never like didactically, like this is how it is, is that you are open to the stranger and you do accept the stranger. And mm -hmm. that's a lesson from coming out of Egypt. And even in Genesis, it was like, we are all created equal. And this is not me trying to be modern. I'm a girl daddy and it's lgbtq or a me too movement and i'm trying to be you know for the mode or trend of the moment it actually goes all the way back in the way we are all equal and that's back to the old testament in genesis and in the in the in the form of creator and again i am still working out my own identity with my own spirituality so i'm not saying like there's a maker man woman sitting in a chair with a gray beard gray hair or whatever else it is, right. but there is an essence there. And, um, you know, so everybody deserves a fair shake and a fair treatment and dignity and uh, being connected. And that is a much larger picture than 
You know, um, my great, 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 great grandparents in 1810 grew up in Ramallah and the Ottomans displaced them. And then you can do the, all these historical through, you know, through line of it and figure out who was there first or whatever, which frankly, the past is the past. It's in the toilet. It doesn't, you know, in the sense that it's gone. But it does um, definitely inform the present. And I think that's where people forget you do have to look back not to live there but looking in the rearview mirror definitely helps you understand how you got to where you are and yeah. and you have to in at some level you have to understand that so that you understand the trauma behind the behavior right now and you can't move forward until you address the trauma ask any uh, recovering alcoholic mm-hmm. they they can't move forward until they address the original trauma that caused it and that goes back generations, thousands of years. I actually just recently watched a, a rewatched a video on YouTube about generational trauma and how that affects people. And one of the things they studied was um, women who were pregnant during uh, Superstorm Sandy and mm. what happened subsequently after the baby was born and nursing through that. Because when you're nursing, you're giving the baby all kinds of stuff, of course, through your milk. And one of the things they saw very consistently was higher levels, naturally higher levels of cortisol in the infant's bloodstream, which is the stress hormone. So if you have naturally higher levels of that, you're going to struggle with anxiety until you figure out the tools to, to manage that and change your brain. You can. I mean, there is a lot of neuroscience out there that we have very elastic brains. But this story started with a study of children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. So, and that's just that side of the equation. Right. I mean, you look right. at the the people uh, that are Palestinians for whatever label you want to use, The they're like the gypsies of that part of the world and no one has welcomed them for generations. So what does that do to your psyche? Right. And then, and then a context of storytelling, you know, and you talk about, um, uh, I'm, I can't remember the word. I'll use the word damaged. Mm-hmm. You know, it's passed down from generations, like a culture, like traditions, like habits, generational and, trauma. Yeah, yeah. And that damage, you know, so maybe, maybe as Sarah, you're the uh, master storyteller and you have your facile around the world of storytelling. You know, maybe what's missing is, you know, telling the story newly, differently, recontextualizing it, reframing it. Now, I don't know the mechanics of how to do that. And it's not, I often find, oh, power is knowledge, information is knowledge is power and all that. You know, putting the information in, if there are, if, if a person is predisposed already, um, it's quite difficult to soften the ground. It's possible. Um, especially when they're very polarized and, and, and positional. Um, but I just think in my core, um, look, I met my wife in Israel. My cousins from Israel lived in my house in New Jersey when I was at summer camp. They, they, they went to Cornell and I'm still connected with them. And, you know, how is it that, um, the part of the theses of being Jewish is acceptance? and reaching out and compassion and kindness and goodness. And it's so 
antithetical to what the world is seeing right now, or at least certain filters. And and it's really hard to reconcile. And I think, like you said, first of all, I got a problem, you know, and then you got to address it. And I think that Israeli society is very vibrant in that sense that they're free expression, um, it's a democracy, and and all all uh, all flags fly, all voices are heard. And right now, the pendulum, I think, for my personal aesthetic and taste is in mm-hmm. a position where I'd like it to swing another way, you know? Yeah, well, the same could be said for Christians. I have so many friends who consider themselves Christians who are just sickened, absolutely mortified, by the way certain loud voices are portraying Christianity. And I think one of the things about reframing those stories that you were mentioning is that we have to start at the individual level. There's an organization called Narrative 4. It's nonprofit. Colin McCann started it. He's the founder. He has artists and musicians and authors from all over the world participating in this thing. It's amazing. And what they do is they do what's called a story exchange. And the last one I heard about, I interviewed Lee uh, Keelock on my podcast last year, and he's one of the the primary people in that organization. And he described this as they brought students, high school students from Backwoods, Kentucky, up to the Bronx in New York, introduced them to students there, and they shared stories with each other in pairs. And then they had to ask their partner for permission to share their partner's story to the larger group in the debriefing um, as if it was their own story. Mm. They had to tell it from the first person. And I got chills hearing the way that he described the shift in perspective by doing that. And I actually did that exercise when I did a storytelling and spirituality workshop in Portland, Maine. And I had... Some of them had a hard time. These are adults, mostly over 40, some some over 60. And they had a hard time sometimes telling the story from that perspective. Oh, right. I was supposed to tell, tell it like I experienced it. But one woman told the story of a man and and the experience of the death of his mother. And the whole room was in tears. And mm. she, t- as if she had experienced it. Mm. And he was crying, looking at her with this incredible uh, admiration and love because she told his story for him in such a way that brought him some understanding of his own story. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, it's like, so what happens there that's a structure, but you get to get to your, your given permission to inhabit, you know, another story. Yeah. It's amazing. So that's part of how I work. Like when I do a keynote, I have people share stories at their tables. It's very engaging. I don't, I don't like just talking for an hour. I like to make sure that people are talking to each other because the whole point is to connect music and story connects our brains. It connects our hearts. And when we do that in these small groups, it makes us feel more connected to the entire community. So um, what I want to hear from you is that I met you because my brother said, oh, my sister is a speaker. And do you mind if I introduce her to Seth? He he asked your brother (laughs) if he could introduce me to you. (laughs) It's a long, 
funny, funny connectedness situation. Just as a quick interruption, my brother in Strengths Finder leads with connectedness. And that is the magical talent of understanding intuitively before he even thinks about it, who needs to know whom. Mm-hmm. He makes introductions that are absolutely extraordinary. And that's because of his connectedness. But anyway, I digress. It's natural um, for him now. You know? Yes. Well, it's yeah. always been natural for it's him. Second nature. It's always been second nature. He's the guy that when we were like five and seven on a road trip, we'd have those big books of puzzles because we didn't have electronics in the car back right. then in the seventies. Um, but he would pick the connect the dots page and it might have a hundred dots. And within the first five, he'd say, Oh, it's going to be a rabbit. No matter. He could just see it. He just could see it. That's he cool. understands connecting the dots. Anyway, that's beside the point. So when he asked if he could introduce you to me, it was because you have this keynote curators business. And um, I am curious about, well, I, I know that there's a spirituality aspect of it because you understand intuitively how certain speakers can positively impact audiences. So I would love to hear how that has happened in your mm-hmm. past where you went, yeah. oh, this is why I do this. This has positive, huge ripple effects. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's a great question. And, you know, I, I've called it soulfulness in, in the keynote curators, which is our company, spirituality. I start with the premise. I think it's ballsy. I think it's big. I think it's a, a large, uh, statement to stand on. And it, it probably admittedly doesn't get established enough, but I'm grounded in it that I believe words matter and a speech can change a life and a speech can change the world. And um, whether I'm literally hearing that or presencing that with keynoters, that's the framework, that's the context within, it, with, within which I operate. Um, taking, taking it from there, you know, there's a broad range of topics, styles, um, you could be something very technical, like how do you apply AI to financial services or healthcare, to a leadership talk, to a former athlete, a former politician, um, a, a Navy SEAL. And it's a, it's quite a broad range. Um, so, so how is something drier talking to an audience of bond lawyers about, um, being more optimizing your time and being more effective leading teams, that doesn't sound sexy, spiritual, or soulful. But frankly, if the message and the intention and the initiative is delivered and it can be taken away and applied immediately and it has an impact, that's transformative. And it might be dry and it might be uh, not the shiny object of the moment, but the idea is to educate, bring forth ideas and transform. On the other hand, maybe, you know, that one, that's one dial. On the other dial, you have things that are quite obvious. Um, you have things that, you know, um, a movie star, Jim Franco plays Aaron Ralston in the movie. He's a, he gets caught in Moab, cuts his arm off. You know, I always can't resist saying it's incredible. 
28 hours the movie was or 26 hours, something like that. But you were an Eagle Scout. What were you doing out there by yourself? So that's my commentary. <laughs> it helps that- We all get into that, right? Yeah, Regardless. that's a separate episode. It helps <laughs> that Jim Franco or Will Smith with regard to Christopher Gardner, who did Pursuit of Happiness, it helps when somebody who's Oscar nominated or an Oscar performance or an Oscar winner uh, inhabits your role on the silver screen, and that's a big boom. But the bottom line is, even though somebody has played you, are you able to deliver the message and make a difference? So I tell, this is an unsolicited offering for storytellers, Sarah, okay? And we may have touched on this when we first uh, met, you know, there's here's my dial analogy again. Um, many speakers are done and they get attention. Um, often the attendees have to go to the bathroom. They have to go to another session. They have to catch a flight, but many will come up and they'll say something like, oh my gosh, you are an amazing storyteller. And if Sarah had trained them, what an accolade, right? Like, pff, like that's pretty good. I mean, that's better than pretty good. I'm a great, your stories are amazing. Um, what a life you've lived. Um, I love how you, um, told your tales. And I put that in a bucket called admiration. It's not bad. We all need it. It can be fuel. It can be validating. It can be the springboard to expand your ability, whether it's in storytelling or whatever area that you want to expand your capacity in. Mm -hmm. What I what I listen for with my clients when they say, we want this kind of speaker, and it can be a little bit onerous, onerous, is it onerous or onerous? It can be a little bit irksome because I want to get under the hood. And often it's a meeting professional who's tasked with an assignment from um, another executive who just throws out an idea and they don't have a lot themselves. So I'll say, well, leadership, tell me a little bit more. Um, you know, servant leadership, is it more of a di directive? What, 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 you know, give me a little bit more right. texture I so ask, that I can. Yeah. I always ask, what do you want people to know when they leave? Right. What do you want people to do when they leave? How do you want people to feel when they leave your event? Yeah. Yeah. Because that's going to generate action. And the other dial is instead of admiring, which is valid and valuable. Mm -hmm. They say, you know what, Sarah, that story you told about your grandfather um, or the time that you went to that concert with your dad, you know, it made me think about my relationship with my daughters and not like I'm comparing or I feel like I'm missing, but what I could do new differently um or maybe take away that isn't working or just reflect and look at it. Mm -hmm. And you now disappeared as a personality. The story may have even disappeared, but that core virtue um, remained. And that's the gift. And that's the transformative fuel that I ground myself in. Now, we're literally talking about literally talking about it, right? And it doesn't mm -hmm. always show up there. But if an attendee to a keynote speech walks away and can apply immediately something that they've learned and it has an impact that's positive and expansive, that's where the curation happens. And that's the appeal. That's the, you know, 
that that that's the um attraction to me as just being one little touchstone in the vehicle in that through line mm-hmm. of the process of you know education transforming and 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 people growing i love did that, that answer your question um it, it in a way it did but what i would like to hear is a story of where that actually happened like okay. which and it doesn't have to be a big name person that you worked with, but somebody who you know has made an impact and it made you realize that your work really is a foundational yeah. support to yeah. that potential impact. There there are so many. And I um I'll take the most recent one. Um, a gentleman named Ben from Vancouver, um uh scholarship uh athlete in college. Um, national, uh, captain of the national rugby team, the junior rugby team, um, and everything going for him, athletic, good looking, smart, um, and has, you know, a little bit of a tragedy, which in, in, in grand terms of our initial conversation with what's going on in the Middle East isn't so great, but, you know, he fell into some depression around, um, some performance in, in athletics Mm -hmm. and when in, you know, left college, dropped out, lost his scholarship, went into his parents' house, went into the basement and slowly, but surely he pulled himself out and he created this whole life. And it's called the buried life based on a poem from a British author in the mid 1800s. Even then this poet was talking about things that we put aside things that we say we'll do tomorrow, someday, which is not on the calendar. There's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, but there's no someday. The idea turned into a road trip, turned into a video, turned into MTV, picking it up, and he got a lot of traction. He wrote a book. And he now speaks. And while you hear the term bucket list, what the anchor that pulled him out, not pulled him down, but the right. driving force was, what is it that I want to do with my life? What is What have I buried? Mm-hmm. And he speaks to people's buried lives. And he speaks to those things that we put away for a rainy day or someday or one day. So recently, uh, he was sharing the story. You know, it sounds sexy. He has a bucket list and he has a hundred things on it. And he's on like 97 and he wants to go into space. I mean, we're talking singing at a stranger's wedding, um, riding a Bronco in a rodeo, going, playing basketball with the president at the White House. These are things that he wrote down and they accomplished them all. Um, giving a speech like in wedding crashers at a, at a stranger's wedding. Um, all these kind of things. And he's going into space. He's organized it and he's going on one of these, you know, Blue Origin or SpaceX or one of these. And um, to hold the newborn baby. So he was in, somebody heard about it through social media and they invited him in, a couple. And they were like, yeah, come in. Like crazy things like that. (laughs) And he... Um, I don't know the exact language of it, but it was something around um, somebody was born with a handicap, a deformed hand, and he wanted to um, provide a a life altering uh, prosthetic or something for somebody in that situation. So he does it. It's, it's, I don't want to belittle. It's it's like tear jerking. It's incredible. It's a single father and his daughter. 
And, you know, they're showing how she has these formed hands from birth and how she's putting on her makeup and everything. And they get the hands and she's curling her hair. It's just just unbelievable. Well, I was at this speech recently. It was actually in Vancouver in his hometown. And there's a line and everybody's like all this admiration and it's great and everything. And this woman in a wheelchair comes up and she's just literally it's Niagara Falls just crying. And she said that she had been offered many things, many times to do these experimental prosthetics, but she had been afraid. And uh, she promised him that she would take it on. And it was right there, you know, and it's just like, you know, that has nothing to do with more business or be a better neighbor or, you know, that's like serving yourself. And one of the core virtues of his story, I keep using that term core virtue. One of the, one of the um, important points of his story is, um, and he uses the metaphor, you get on the airplane and they say, parents, before you put the oxygen mask over your kids, put it on you. And he's like, you know, it's not being selfish. You have to serve yourself so you can serve others. And if you're always putting yourself behind others, then it's it becomes inauthentic. It becomes a, a shield and a guard. So I kind of deviated a little bit, but that's just one example of um, you know an area where I saw very recently, very in in living color. Now, did I call the woman up and check up and find out? No, I just left with the authentic notion that there was a a a moment, and there's always a moment. There's a before and an after, and here this woman was relating to the buried life and people had actually come to her and said, look, this is possible. Let's give it a shot. And she was making an argument for no. Yeah. And mm -hmm. this turned that into a possibility. Right. And in the realm of possibility, you know, you, you see, you see the world differently. And I'll just finish with this, Sarah. What happens with possibility is this, and I see it all the time with many other speeches. There's a gentleman who from our hometown of Colorado, Eric, who summited Everest, another Eagle Scout, who at 14, between eighth grade and high school, became blind in 90 days. And he summited Everest in his in 2001 or 2002 or something like that. It's in, it's transformational. And it's not like, oh God, you know, I'm, you know, my shoulder hurts from too much tennis and I'm like complaining, like this guy's blind to somebody ever, but it does put things into context. But what I see a lot, and I dare, I don't want to pontificate because I'm, I'm guilty of it too, is that possibility comes and we get touched and inspired. And then what it takes to fulfill that possibility is in that gap. And that's where we get stopped. So I've seen speakers talk about that and how, you know, it's a little, again, it's less sexier. There might be a method, there might be a structure, accountability partners, whatever it takes. But, you know, it's, it's something that, um, I have the, the, the privilege of now in the day to day, Sarah, if I'm invoicing or updating the website or recording a podcast, is the, are those moments available all the time? No, but I, you know, I try to stay grounded in those. Does that answer your question? Yes, that okay. was perfect. That's exactly what I was looking okay. for. Thank you. And I, I have, and to I say, said it, I said it warmly. Yes, you said it well. <laughs> 
what I was immediately thinking of is um, all the the presentations, the keynotes that I've seen in my decades in my career. And the ones that I remember are the worst ones. And the ones that um, (laughs) continue to make me think about my own behavior and what I can do. And those always start with something admirational, you know, aspirational. Mm -hmm. And they always have some specific strategy that I can implement. Now, Mm -hmm. I am not a touchy-feely kind of person. I know. I'm a storyteller. I love to hug. I'm super, um, uh, super into affection, physical affection, but I am not the woo-woo soft person. And I need to hear the brain science behind something. So when I hosted an event over a few years um, here in Helena called the Women's Leadership Network Annual Conference, I was on the board. So I helped host three or four of these. They're big for for our standards, our little town sure. standards. And the there are two that came to mind. But the first one is I started with brain science. It was Melissa Hughes talking about how gratitude changes the brain. So it was sciencey and it was applied, practical, um, incredibly helpful. There were tears. There's a picture of me with Kleenex boxes walking table to table. Um, and people walked away with these notes. And one of my best friends, when I gave a presentation, I said, well, how do you think it went? She said, I lost count of the number of times people picked up their pens. Mm. And I was like, oh, yes, that's a perfect description of an effective keynote or an effective workshop. And um, the afternoon was about confidence, instilling confidence in yourself and others. And it was definitely softer. It was not neuroscience. It was, there was citation, there was research behind it, but it was definitely more on that soft Mm -hmm. side. I remember talking to one of my friends who's more like me who just needs the the strategy the applicable applicable practical stuff and the proof and the proof exactly and she said i loved the whole day the morning was definitely more my thing but the afternoon was good because now i know how to help other women it wasn't for me mm. but it was for me yeah yeah so i i hear you and um i i love that there's this combination sometimes of the admiration and the action. Yeah. I think that they both, both dials could be way up. I don't think it's half and half. I think, you know, you have to read the room. You have to know the balance. You have to, you have to also be true to yourself. Sometimes if you're a one note pony and that's your storytelling, great, but know that you have to stand. It can't, you can't be the taker as the speaker. You have to be the giver. And if, if if many attendees want to just be washed over and that's fine, I, you know, you're not going to please them all, all, all the people all the exactly. time. Um, and you just have to accept that. And you could also, you, you could, but I think that, you know, for a speaker to provoke, because the other thing is here's seven things we're going to do for highly, you know, highly great teamwork or communication or whatever, practical and applicable, but it's just um, like flat information unless you can provoke the participant, the listener, the active listener to plug in 
engage, whatever you want to call it, connect in a way where they're going to glom onto it and and inhabit it and take it on and make it their own and borrow it, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's not just like, here it is, you can PDF me, text me, I'll send it to you right away. Great. You know, people are over giving, everything's free, free, free. I mean, to me, sometimes when speakers give too much, it lowers your status, not like it's a competition, but it's like, no, and it's not make them work, but get it, get it, get involved a little bit, you know, like a a healthy, loving provocation, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, not just to be provocative, to be provocative, but something that's uh, relevant to them, that's dialed into what they're grappling with, that, that, that can Mm -hmm. move the DNA a little bit, you know? Well, when you were saying um, that you don't know whether this woman in the wheelchair actually moved forward with it, if she took that risk that she perceived as a significant risk, but um, I just remembered about something that happened at one of um, one of my keynotes where I was talking about why using the word family to describe your workplace is not a good thing. And um, I knew it was going to be provocative. I knew there were going to be some people that didn't like what I had to say. And at the same time, I also knew that those are the people that needed to hear the message. Yeah. And I remember I was bracing myself to see those evaluations. And of course, the majority of them were really positive. There were two that said, I didn't like what Sarah had to say. My workplace is a family. We really feel close. And they missed the entire point of the message. But what I knew is that because they took the time to write this down, it was definitely a wedge that opened the door a little bit to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Considering just this edge of considering that maybe that's not a great idea that there is there's room now where if i hadn't brought that up they never would have even considered that this might not be the best way to approach a workplace yeah so yeah i was ready <laughs> i was ready yeah. for it and not like it's required but the w- what would be the instruction or the input or the the something that's provided to you that makes a difference maybe there is a reapproach of that idea that makes it more attractive, a little bit disarming to pull those people in. Like the work is done on the fray there. How could I frame it? What what could I preamble something with right. that um, might be, you know, speak to the cynics, speak to the people that this irks, you know? And there's and, also the possibility of talking to the the organizers who this was a company. So it wasn't like a bunch of random people from mm-hmm. the public coming to this. So it opens the door for the organizers to continue that conversation down yeah. the line. Once they see that evaluation, they understand where those friction points might be coming from in the dynamics within the workplace. So even if I don't, I, I'll probably not go back and I certainly won't talk on that subject for that group again. Um, yeah, I hear what you're saying. There is a possibility that I could start it differently to open the door. I can tell you the thing that... Um, my intention, which is, it's meaningless, really, except that it, it to 90% of the people in there, 95% of the people in there, it worked, was I started with singing a song. I don't like half the folks I love. It's a country song. It's really funny. And I had that playing as I walked on stage and I was singing along. And 
everybody was like, you could see their eyes light up when they realized it was me singing with it. Right. Because they're like, whoa, the keynote's singing. That's okay. That's weird. Um, (laughs) And it was cool because I had a whole playlist, family music playlist. And the way that I started it was, okay, what do you think of when you hear the word family? What are the words and phrases that come to mind? And the first part was all, you know, warmth, love, compassion, uh, unconditional love. And then I hear, finally, I'm like waiting, finally from the back, somebody goes, obligation. I'm like, oh, fighting. (laughs) What else? And they're like, a lack of boundaries. And you could hear. Yeah. I mean, some people were very clear that they had some complex um, feelings about the word family. And that's, I thought, and that's how I started it. Okay. Clearly, we have really different perspectives on what the word family represents to us. So it might be important to recognize that some people might be sensitive to the word family if they didn't grow up in a family that the first words that come to mind are warmth and compassion. So that's a great framing that that's a great framing, you know? Yeah, it was pretty fun. Anyway, this is about you. As we come full circle, I love to come full circle. And in these conversations, people often are like, I know she's going to wrap this back together. How did that happen? (laughs) Um, It's I have I have the connectedness talent, too, but it's not my top five. But um, what I keep hearing as a kind of a theme here is that desire to make a positive impact, that um, drive to know that even if you're not the person on stage, because you're not the person on stage all the time, that you know innately that foundationally you're, you're creating the structure to support these messages that are changing things. As um, another guest recently said, Peter Davis, he said, I, I want to help the difference makers reach those, mm. those people and those goals. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I see it as a, we're the keynote curators as a vehicle, we're a pathway, we're a vessel, you know. Mm-hmm. So who, sure. if you could speak to your client, whoever that is in our listenership, what would you say to them about the work that you do? Your vision for it, maybe. That I truly um, am interested in what their values are. Um, whether it's uh, growth, security, belonging, experience. And I will squire along. I will be your Sherpa to have those values uh, be manifested and spoken to and delivered and have a keynoter, a breakout session any type of main stage speaker that you need that's going to seamlessly, flawlessly, um, in, in a beautiful, the most beautiful way, align with that. And to get there, the process is going to be fun and we're going to learn together. And I provide a curation process that is ever changing, ever growing, ever expanding that, um, facilitates and for me might sound a little pretentious is also a vehicle for you as a meeting professional and as my client and as my buyer to grow within 
and expand your idea of how you want to have a conference and have that keynoter and how you arrive at that and how you can talk to your team or your organization about it and how it fits into everything, the catering, uh, the transportation, the security, so that it's not just like Groundhog Day where it's like, okay, we have a nine months, we're nine months out, let's get a list, let's pare it down, this is how much we have, oh, the budget changed, and then do it that way where I'm coming in, albeit maybe not all the time, but I'm there and I'm aware and partnered up with you. That's perfect. I love that description. And as a meeting planner myself, boy, could I use that advantage <laughs> when I'm doing <laughs> my event planning. Um, I, I was thinking about something, but it just left my head again. I think yeah, it's uh, it a happens. little bit of brain fog this time of year. Yeah. This has been such a pleasure, Seth, as always. I loved our first conversation. I was talking about it days later with friends and some of my friends who are speakers and some of my friends who are meeting and event planners and coordinators. And um, it's just been such a different perspective on the whole process to be talking to you about what that keynote or what that um, what that person, it's not a keynote, it's a person, what that human yeah. can bring to the audience. Yeah. So I really appreciate your perspective on that. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me and, and able to share with it. It's been, it's been delightful. I'm enthralled <laughs> <laughs> and no, really. And it's been just great and easy to speak with you. And, you know, I, I love your perspective and um, I, I've, you know, taken a new look at storytelling, you know, I have your book, it's, it's right on my desk. And, uh, you know, I just, I'm glad that your brother connected us. Me too. Thank you. Eric Elkins, thank you, as always, for looking out for me. You are like the quintessential big brother, <laughs> all the way down to the teasing. <laughs> Double E. Yes, for sure. Listeners, now it's your turn. What keynote or presentation or breakout session have you experienced in recent years that fit into one of those categories? or both of those categories, the admiration or the action, or both. Did you take that next step? Did you listen to that possibility? Did it niggle at you for a little while before you finally decided, yes or no, I'm going to take that risk? I want to hear about that. Tell me the story in the comments on this podcast. You can reach Seth Deckman at the links that are on the podcast show notes associated with this episode at elkinsconsulting.com. Thanks so much for listening. Smile, what's the use of crying? You'll find that life is still worthwhile if you just smile.